Would you uh, pray with me? Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Christ. That we, come, we can draw near to you and trust that you will draw near to us. Father, would you grant us a great outpouring of your spirit that we would understand and we would be drawn to appreciate and delight in seeking your face and communing with you, Father. Father, would you, would you bring about a greater awareness of the reality of your accessibility and the ability to enjoy you as a father? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, many of you have taken psychology classes, and, you know, really the first year, I think, you learn that word association. So when someone asks, you know, if someone says, okay, water, and you think, well, swimming, and someone says, hunger, and I think, steak. And, and, and what, what are the associations that you have with certain words? And if I were to, if I were to say to you, well, if I say prayer, to you. I mean, I think a lot of folks, it might be ugh, you know, or, or a measure of guilt or disappointment or uncertainty or a lack of faith. Now, if you're up front, all of us admit and we give prayer a place of importance within the faith. But if we were truthful, we would struggle, we would perhaps admit to a struggle with praying, wanting to pray, finding any sort of delight in prayer. And then when we come to this text that I'll be preaching on, I'm really only preaching on a couple, two words, uh, pray unceasingly in verse 17, then it's really disappointment, even despair. And and I want to try to chart a path out of this thing. I, I think it's much more accessible and much more enjoyable. My hope is to move you from despairing or disappointing over your prayer life to a measure of delight. And I know that is no small task. So uh, I hope to do this, though, out of 1 Thessalonians 5. If you turn there with me, we're going to read 12 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 18. Paul writes, this is the end of his first letter to this church. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now, you can see what I'm preaching on in terms of that pray without ceasing. Uh, What I want to remind you of, though, is the context in which this call for prayer is made. The context is found in the first half of chapter 5, which is about this day that is coming. It's the day of the Lord. It's It's this great cosmic reconciliation of God and all of creation. It's a day that is to grip us with both a degree of fear and excitement. In fact, Paul writes earlier, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. In other words, this church was already well aware of this day that was coming. This church was already aware of it and was ready for it. In fact, he goes on and he says this. He says, For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us keep awake and keep sober. In other words, you are children of the light. So this is a day that is drawing forth to you, that's to grip you with excitement. He goes on and he says this. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So what he's saying here is this day of the Lord is the impetus of all that follows that I just read, verses 12 to 18. These instructions that he gives you as the church follow the day of the Lord, that this day of the Lord is to propel us to wanting to walk in a way this church will be happy and healthy and strong. And that's what you see these instructions come out of. Now, as you notice when I read them, they're really around three poles. One is about church. As you wait for this day of the Lord, maintain right relationships with church leadership. He says that you ought to respect the leaders who are over you in the Lord. In other words, there's a respect that you're to have for the leaders. Interesting, you're also to esteem them. You're to honor them, and that follows their admonishing of you. Now, doesn't that sound absolutely crazy to our culture? That is so individual, and nobody's going to tell me what to do, and I know everything about everything? And here, in Scripture, it says that as you approach the day of the Lord, you are to esteem those who admonish you. Why? Because they're for your good. They're wanting you to be prepared so when Jesus Christ does return in power and glory, you'll be happy. And you'll be happy over their influence in your life. But then he moves on to the relationships we have with each other. He speaks about this idea of being peace, being at peace with ourselves and one another. Be patient with them all. I mean, the implication clearly is we're going to have conflict, but the gospel is sufficient to reconcile conflict. He says that we need to, and notice, he says this to the church, not just to the leadership, but he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. That's what you are called to do with each other as you wait for this day to to approach. And then last, he speaks about our relationships with God in terms of rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ. So that is to be our attitude, that we're rejoicing. We're thanking God in every situation. We're constantly praying. Now, when you see a list like this, sometimes it's intimidating. You kind of think, oh, you know, I, I can maybe do two out of the eight. Maybe I can do three. And, and we get overwhelmed by lists in Scripture. And I just want to encourage you that I look at these lists, and, and most of the lists in Scripture, as kind of a portrait of life. I, I, I'm not so concerned always about It's like playing golf. If you've ever played golf, you know that your grip is important and your stance is important. Your feet have to be spread apart properly and your hips square and your head down and, and, when, and, your, and your shoulders right. And then when you bring the club back, your left arm has to be straight and it has to stop at the top swing. And when you come down, your hips have to move. For, you can't play golf that way. I, I mean, you'll never hit the ball. You couldn't hit it with a tennis racket. You just get in a rhythm after practicing and, and, and walking out life in Christ you're not thinking about, well, I did the first three, and I, did, I didn't do the fourth or the fifth. It's part of the fabric of life. And that's why we're doing this Life Together series, living together. As, as we're mutually growing in our love for God, as we're mutually serving one another, as we're mutually growing in our love for the Word, that, that our love for God's going to increase, and our life together will be bettered. And that's the goal here as well. The prayer is part of that package. 
that he calls for us to pray unceasingly. But I want you to see that the call to pray unceasingly is set in the context of there will be a day. And this day is coming. Either you advancing in age or him advancing in return. Now, what do you think of when you think of the day? Do you consider it? How do you consider it? What goes into your mind? Is it distant? Is it almost unreal in your mind? What do you consider? Because I think most of us do not give weight to considering the day. We are so immersed in our culture and in our modern world that the modernization of our world has made the supernatural recede and and that, that which is seen and felt take front stage. David Wells was a professor of mine in seminary, and he wrote, this, he wrote these words about modernism and how it has denied us that hunger for the supernatural. He says this, the experience of abundance, which is the result of both extraordinary ingenuity and untamed desire, is a telltale sign that we have moved from the traditional society to one that is modern, from a time when God and the supernatural were natural parts of life one in which God is now alienated and dislocated from our modernized world. In traditional societies, what one could legitimately have wanted was limited. It was, of course, limited because people lived with only a few choices and little knowledge of life other than the life they lived. Their vision of life had not been invaded, as ours is, by pictures of beguiling Caribbean shorelines, sleek luxury under the Lexus insignia, Timeshares in fabulous places or exotic perfumes, sure to stir hidden passions. In other words, we didn't see a lot. So we live in a modern world, and and the supernatural has moved to the side. Now, for the Christian, this day of the Lord is to not cause fear, but excitement, encouragement. It is to be a bit of a warning for us, but, but it's to be engaging of more of our minds that we're developing a greater zeal for Christ a greater love to see him, a greater pilgrim mindset. You know, again, as I've mentioned time and time again, I think the Puritans were wise to remind us that graying hair, aching knees, aging bodies, age spots are all reminders to you. Life isn't going to go on as you think it's going to go on. You're marching toward a time, and you want to live in light of it. Now, over the past few weeks, I've been reading through some of Jonathan Edwards' writings on heaven and hell, and uh, it is not for the faint of heart. In fact, I've been greatly convicted over my absolute love for the modern world, my love for comfort, my enjoyment of things. I mean, I've I've been deeply convicted. They're not bad things. I just have begun to love them quite a bit. And I found a deep conviction over the growing ambivalence that I often have over the lost, not really being concerned about this day of judgment coming. And as I read the descriptions by Jonathan Edwards, who was this pastor in New England in the 18th century, he writes with such imagery that I think if I read some of his sermons, which I'm going to be tempted to do, you would be aghast at how harsh it is. But let me give you just a a moderate taste of Edwards regarding the wrath of God, because that's what we're speaking about here. Ceaseless prayers being born out of this day where you are not destined to endure the wrath of God but to obtain a salvation that is yours in Christ who died for you, but the wrath is still real. And here's what he writes. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. 
they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. Tis true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing and more mighty. There is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. They're unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of fierceness and wrath would rush upon with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. I mean, that's language we are not accustomed to hearing. And yet, does the Scriptures not talk about the wrath of God? Is this day not to arrest our attention? I think this is what Jesus was getting at when he said to Peter and James and John, he said, he said, watch and pray that you don't slip into temptation. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. And so ceaseless prayer has to be born out of this recognition that a day will come. A day will come. That reality will become your reality, even if it isn't now. In fact, when I was reading this, I was thinking, how I just want to remind you of this perspective. Here is a reality that we live as if it is unreal. Now, to the non-Christian, what does the non-Christian do with this? Well, the non-Christian has to, what? He has to re-image God, does he not? This is what I call the etch-a-sketch God. You know, we kind of build God in the measure that we want. And we build God, he's kind, he's a little bit older, uh, he's nice, he's gentle. He would never act wrathful towards anything in his creation. It's the etch-a-sketch God. And yet, if you're going to build a God, Shouldn't you add in other parts? I don't say that those parts are actually untrue. I think they they have measures of truth in them. But with that God is jealousy and holiness and wrath and reconciliation and bringing all creation under his control. So if we're going to build a God, let's make sure not build a caricature of God, but let us build the real God that Scripture portrays clearly. And so this is an encouragement to us to pray without ceasing is helped as you look at the day that comes and as you dwell upon it. So that's the context. Now, let me try to explain to you the nature of this prayer, this unceasing prayer. And I want to do it in two parts. Because unceasing prayer is often confused. It confuses us. Number one, I think there is a formal understanding of this. In other words, prayer is that idea that we're communing with God. Now, 90% of America prays. But if I were to ask them, what does that mean? I think most people would say, what's well, when you ask God for things that you need help with? And that is, in fact, true. But it's more than that. The word that Paul uses here is a more comprehensive word. It means prayer, including petition, thanksgiving, praise. It includes confession. And he's saying that this is the prayer we're to have with God, that we don't want to miss the obvious that what, Paul's pray, what Paul is saying is you ought to pray. And when you pray, it ought to include all these things, not just asking for things. Now, the prayer is to be unceasing. Now, obviously, I think we can be clear that he doesn't mean this literally as it would be impossible. Not only is it impossible to pray without ceasing, but it then run contrary to other commands that he gives us in this very verse that we read. 
So when we hear pray unceasingly, I think we're speaking about this idea of regular, consistent, habitual, a practiced prayer life that we're praying on a regular basis. I think that's the meaning as well. Same word used in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul writes, The God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, he is my witness how unceasingly I remember you. Now, Paul's writing to the Roman church and how unceasingly he remembers them. I don't think he means that he only remembered the Roman church and somehow forgot about the church at Thessalonica or Philippi or Ephesus. But I think it's that continual, that when we pray, there's a continual, a habitual going after things, that we're persistent in our prayer, that we're persevering. I, I think Carol and I have seen it in our own lives as we've, you know, Carol for many years, she always read the scriptures and studied them, but didn't really have a delight in them. And so I remember we have prayed for years that she would have a delight in reading the scriptures. We just ask God. And we pray, I don't know how many years it's been, but it's been years. And probably the past two or three years, she has truly had a delight in these things. She's had a delight in the scriptures. In a lot of years of ministry, she was faithful to study the scriptures, but didn't have that delight. Now she does. God was faithful to answer our prayer. Or even when we began ministry, I have one of those personalities that you would say maybe doesn't have compassion as its front and center quality. I can tend, I know, I know you can argue with me all day long if you want. Um, but, but we would pray. I remember the, the first pastor, we prayed every night that God would develop in me a compassion for people, a compassion for those that I seek to serve. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we still pray. And God has given me a greater compassion, a greater love for the people. And I know in your minds right now, you may be thinking, well, don't just stop praying just yet. <laughs> let, let, let's keep praying a little bit because I've seen some of that other side of you. And we'd like a little bit more compassion. And I do pray for that. I, I need that. I need that to lead well. But the point of it is that there's that persevering prayer that Paul is calling us to do. But, but let me draw you a little bit deeper. Because I think this call for unceasing prayer in its context is a bit different. It's a little more intimate. It's a communion. And for some of you, this may feel a bit abstract. And I just ask you to hang with me. I think what he's asking us to do, really commanding us to do, is to commune with God in a more intimate, consistent way. What I mean by this is that prayer isn't so much an act as I do in the morning. That it is, and I just explained that. But there's an attitude, a posture of prayer, kind of like what Adam had with God in the garden. He experienced relationship with God at a level that was intimate, conversational. It wasn't just, I'm now going to pray, but it's an ongoing dialogue, conversation that we have with God. I think that's what he's driving at here. I want to read to you from uh, Alexander McLaren, who was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. Brilliant man, and, uh, but also a very pastoral man. Here's what he wrote about unceasing prayer. He says, but have we ever realized what this commandment, that is unceasing prayer, what it reveals to us as to what real prayer is? For if we're told to do a thing uninterruptedly, it must be something that can run unbroken through all the varieties of our legitimate duties and occupations. Is that your notion of prayer? Or do you fancy that it simply means dropping down on your knee and asking God to give you some things that you very much want? Petition is an element of prayer, and that it shall be uttered with words is necessary. But there are prayers that never get themselves uttered, 
And I suppose that the deepest and truest communion with God is voiceless and wordless. The more we understand what prayer is, the less we shall feel that it depends upon utterance. For the essence of it is to have heart and mind filled with the consciousness of God's presence and to have the habit of referring everything to him in the moment when we are doing it or when it meets us. That, as I take it, is prayer. Now, he's not speaking about prayer being wordless. He's speaking about prayer being an intimate communication with God that is ongoing under the faith that God is actually present with us, that God actually dwells among his people, that you are actually indwelled by God's spirit, confirming that you are a son or a daughter of God, and that this intimacy with God is something that we are to cultivate, walk in, and enjoy. In fact, let me try to walk it out with you. So, so in my life, what I've tried to cultivate, and I haven't done it really well, but I, I feel like moving in it a little bit, is that there is to be this constant stream of, of awareness of God being great and powerful in our lives all the time. So I wake up every night in the middle of the night, multiple times in the night. I'm often led to just thank God for Carol next to me in bed. We have a warm bed, a warm house. God, thank you for that. I, I wake up in the morning. I'm thankful to wake up in the morning. I'm breathing. Before my feet hit the floor, I want to ask God for grace that I might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That as I'm going through the day, I'm aware of God. So I'm walking out in the parking lot, and one of these lovely men that serves us so well every Tuesday morning doing things, I see one hauling a dolly across the parking lot because he's going to move some furniture for us. Just thankful. Just turn right to God. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this man serving us in this way. Or I'm convicted of lust or anger as I'm walking and comes to my mind a response that I had or a thought that I entertained. And God, forgive me for this. And I, I claim the promises of the gospel and I, and I re- rejoice over the forgiveness uh, th- that you're constantly communicating with God throughout the day. And I think this is what John is speaking about. The Apostle John, in his first letter when he writes, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, that is the gospel of Christ so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We we write this to make our joy complete. So he's saying here that there is a fellowship to be had with God, that God as a Father desires our constant communion, communion with him, our enjoyment of him, our, our praising, our worship, our adoration, our confession, that it's an ongoing dialogue. So I think there's two parts to this unceasing prayer. There's the formal prayer where I'm asking God, I have Devotional time this morning, preparing my heart. But that ongoing nature of even before I get up to pray, I'm just talking to God. God, this is for you. You have to bring glory to your name through making your words active and vibrant in the, in the lives of those who hear. So, so there's that formal, but there's the informal. And I think this is where the joy comes from. Because I think prayer is often joyless. But you notice, look with me in 16, 17, and 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without cease, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ. In other words, this idea of rejoicing and this idea of giving thanks is bound up with this idea of praying. That praying with God, being conscious of God's presence, being conscious of God's power and glory and wisdom allows us to rejoice. It allows us to give thanks. No matter what the circumstances, even if bad, because we know God, because we know his power, his glory, and his fatherly love, I can give thanks even for this because he's going to use it. Now, you may notice that I'm preaching out of Thessalonians, which was an early letter of Paul's. 
And you think, well, this is before Paul is put in prison, and he could kind of speak this way because he hasn't been beat up in life just yet. But if you go to Philippians, a later letter of Paul's, and a letter in which he wrote from prison, here's what he writes. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Now, he's in prison. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. There's the eschaton. There's the eschatology. There's that return of God. Do not be anxious about anything but in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. So I think this is the nature of prayer. So I've kind of displayed to you that the context of prayer is the day of the Lord is coming, and we need to pray to be prepared, but also the nature of prayer, being both formal and informal. So, folks, this is where you kind of ask yourself, have you considered prayer in these means? Have you considered prayer as I've described it? And if you have, and if you desire for more of this, let me just make a couple comments uh, to maybe encourage greater delight. How can we have this, in other words? How can we move in this way? Um, The first thing I would say, and I just have about five ideas for you that I would ask you to consider. And the first thing is the nature of your awareness of how dependent you are on God. That to pray unceasingly, that is to have those devotions with God, but also that ongoing dialogue with God, you have to be aware of your dependence. I mean, folks, do you realize, have you come to terms with your massive dependence upon him just for physical life? So, so you breathe 26,000 times a day, approximately. By the time you're 40, you will breathe 378 million. Now, is that just of you? The scripture says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because he's giving it to you. You realize in Job 12.10, there's this demonstration of God's glory. It says that the life of every being is in the hand of God. So we are all breathing in here. Do you understand the nature of it being held in the hand of God, distributed to you out of his grace and mercy? Have you come to terms with the reality that your life is as it is because of his grace to you? But not only, is, not only are we dependent upon God just for physicality, but also for spirituality in terms of coming to faith in Christ, that, that you did not, for those of you who are Christian here, those of you who love Christ, you did not think one day, hey, i got to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus himself, if you think that way, let me just remind you that it was Jesus himself who said, nobody can come to me. None of us in here, for sure. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. So you have the influence of the Spirit, that God giving the Spirit to draw you to Christ, that your salvation has been a gift to you of God. But not just breath and salvation, but even those of you Christians who have been faithful over the years, that faithfulness has still been the grace of God. I mean, that faithfulness is still, you know, that God has given us his Spirit that dwells within us. He provides us grace that we may persevere in faith. It's profound that God is helping you to be sanctified. If you go to the end of chapter 5, you'll see that, that God sanctifies us through and through. It's a work of God. Yes, are you required, required to make effort? Absolutely. But even the efforts that you're working out, it's God working in you. So we are thankful to him. As I consider my own sin and my struggle with passions and lusts and the like and the flesh that I battle, I, I am very aware of my dependency before God. And, and the reason God has it this way, just if you're confused, is because God wants us to see our dependency so that when we turn to him in prayer and he grants and gives and rewards and blesses us, 
that we don't get confused over who's doing the blessing, that we're able to say it is of God and may God be glorified. In Psalm 50, 15, the psalmist says that in the day of trouble, you will call out to me and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's the paradigm he wants to establish in the life of his people because that's reality. You know, uh, Cotton Mather was a, a great Boston pastor in the 17th century, came from a number of pastors. And uh, when he was preaching, he would stop at the beginning of every paragraph and just pray, God, help me to say what your people need to say. He was dependent from paragraph to paragraph to paragraph. Or, or Martin Luther. Martin Luther was once, uh, as recorded in his table talk, he's sitting at the table and he's having a piece of meat and the dog is just sitting there eyes glued on the meat, motionless. And so Luther said, he said, oh, if I could only pray the way the dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. He has no thought, no wish, no hope other than the meat. That that we could pray that way, that we can ask for that. God, give me that dedication to your glory that I might be so focused. So, So without dependence, without a growing dependence upon God, because when you pray, you display your dependence, but you also deepen it. Okay, secondly, I would say that if you're going to pray unceasingly, you have to recognize that this kind of ongoing communication with God, this ongoing dialogue with God, comes out of a life that does have structured prayer, that you do have times of faithfulness in prayer, that, that if you think, well, I'm just going to have this ongoing, free-flowing conversation with God without it rooted in a regular practice of seeking God in the prayer closet, it won't happen. It just won't happen. Even McLaren says that. He says there's little likelihood of you walking with ceaseless prayer if you're not having set times and seasons of prayer. That's just kind of an administrative word to you. I think they go hand in hand. And then thirdly, I would say that if you want to walk in this unceasing prayer, it has to be tethered to the Scriptures. You have to pray with the Scriptures in view. I'm encouraging you to open your Bibles when you pray. And the reason I say this is because if you don't, then you tend to just wander. You wander. You go to the dishes that need to be cleaned, the appointment that you have to remember to make, the carpets need to be vacuumed. Your mind just swings around without the Scriptures in view, either Either that happens, or we tend to fall down into meaningless repetition. So if I were to take you, and I said, okay, you've got 10 minutes alone in a room and pray. Would you run out of things to pray? I think most of us, at least those who have confessed to me, have said, they definitely run out of things to say. But the Scripture directs our prayers. So, so the scripture, and, and the Scripture also moves us out of fleshly prayers, right? Uh, otherwise, I can boil down to always praying for my health or my life or my wife my kids, my job. Those are fine prayers, by the way, to make, but they can't be the main, you know, they can't be the, the main course of your prayer. Rather, the scriptures, as I turn to them, I see Paul praying, open, God, open the eyes of your people. Let them know the hope of your calling. Let them know the power that they have, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So the scriptures guide my prayers into much more of a God-directed way. It's very, very helpful. I rarely pray without some scripture, and it, it keeps me on track. And, and, and then fourth, and very importantly, if you're going to pray without ceasing, you have to rest in the sovereign goodness of God as Father. In other words, that God is working out all things in every way to achieve his perfect purposes in your life, even if the events themselves aren't very good. 
Now, let me explain what I mean. You have to pray with faith in God's sovereign goodness. J.I. Packer once spoke about that he can always tell what a person um, understands about the Christian faith by how they understand God as a father or not. If we don't see God as a father, then our prayers are going to go awry. But we want to pray by faith, faith that God is present with me, that God has given me his spirit to dwell within me. And this is why I always want to avoid terms like this church being God's house. As a Catholic, I would walk into the building, or I would walk into the church, and uh, we'd be horsing around, and my dad would tell me, you know, lower your voice. You're in God's house. And I used to think, what's the big deal with God's ears? I mean, can't he? You know, we can yell and scream on the playground, but we can't really yell and scream in the church. And um, in, in our, it began in me this sacred secular distinction that there was a part of my life that was given to God that was sacred to him Sunday morning, but then the bulk of my life was much more secularized. It's job, work, eat, play, live, sleep, the whole thing. And, and what happens is when you make that distinction, when you, when you forget that God is constantly present, encouraging prayer, then you slip into becoming practical atheists because you think in the office and in the home and in all these places, God really isn't there. It's harder to pray because God's not there. You're not aware of his presence. You're not aware of his glory. You think he's only here on Sunday morning. And so when you leave here, I don't want you to think God stays here. God has made his church that he indwells his people through the spirit. And therefore, when you leave, so does God. And this just remains a building made by human hands. God doesn't dwell here. So think about that. If you're not aware of God's sovereign presence in your life, then you will have trouble praying unceasingly. Folks, I would encourage you, if you're in a high-level meeting getting getting crushed under the weight, that's when you turn to God. God, give me the wisdom I need for these people. When When you're struggling at home, you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're driving. You wake up at night. God is there present. He's over all of his creation. That's the eminence of God. He's everywhere. He's not, creation is not God, but he is over all of us. And then last, I would say this, to pray unceasingly, you have to rejoice in the gospel. And why do I say this? Paul has already spoken about in chapter one, about that he knew the gospel came with power because they were convicted of sin. In chapter 5, he's already said you're not going to be destined to wrath, but you're going to obtain salvation. So, I mean, all this language of the gospel, and the reason this is important to you, you will never pray unceasingly without the gospel. Here's why. Because without the gospel, you will approach God either in fear, will he accept me? Am I praying the right way? You approach God uncertainly, uncertainty. How does he feel about me? I haven't had my devotions this week. Will he listen to me? I haven't done the right things. Can I really approach him in prayer? See, the gospel frees prayer to be unceasing because your acceptance is found in the one who died for you. Just as I read in chapter 5, verse 9, 10, 11, he has died for us, therefore, or excuse me, so that we may live with him forever. In other words, your ability to pray unceasingly, to enjoy the communion with God that he offers you, is because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, your sins have been forgiven. Because of the gospel, you've been adopted as sons. Because of the gospel, you've been given the spirit that you can approach God without fear, with confidence, with joy as a father. And so you can appeal to him. You can enjoy him. You can love him. That's what prayer is about. It's not simply, this is my Christmas list, Santa. 
But it's about knowing God. This is all what heaven is about. This is what you've been made for. In fact, when you understand that, uh, you'll understand these words. David Brainerd was a first American missionary to the American Indians here. Uh, He died actually in Jonathan Edwards' home with his daughter ministering to him, and his daughter actually caught what he had and died subsequently. He writes this, O God, whose will conquers all, there is no comfort in anything apart from enjoying thee and being engaged in thy service. Thou art all in all, and all enjoyments are what to me you make them, and no more. I am well pleased with thy will, whatever it is, or should be in all respects. And if thou biddest me to decide for myself in any affair, I would choose to refer all to thee. For thou art infinitely wise and cannot do amiss, as I am in danger of doing. I rejoice to think that all things are at thy disposal, and it delights me to leave them there. Then prayer turns holy into praise, and all I can do is adore and bless thee. That's this attitude of, God, you are my Father. I'm going to turn all things to you and rest. So I've spoken to you about the context of prayer. It's the first half of chapter 5. A day is coming. Wrath and the giving of salvation. It is a day that is to motivate us to live well. Praying unceasingly is part of living well. I explained to you praying unceasingly is both the formal time of prayers that we enjoy, but also that ongoing communication with God all the time, enjoying him as your father. And now I've just tried to give you some examples of how we might grow in delight in this. So here's what I want to charge you with. Here's how I want to challenge you. Uh, many of you, all of us probably, are pursuing things. Many, many of them are probably good. They're not the best maybe, but they're good. I, I would challenge you to pursue God in this, that you want more of God this year, that, that you want to experience more of his joy and pleasure as you commune with him. I, I'm going to charge you to ask him to be ceaseless in your petitioning him that he's promised already to you. He says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That's a promise of God. And, and I, I want to hold him to that promise, if you will. I, I want to charge him to meet that promise. You have been designed for more. Technology, relationships, health, money, they will never serve you. You've been made in the image of God. You demand more. You ought to demand more. New technology and new things in life, they're fine, they're enjoyable, but they cannot replace what we desperately need, which is to be face-to-face with God in Christ. And so claim these promises of God and ask him. Let me remind you, Martin Lloyd-Jones was another great minister in England, London, in the uh, first half of the 20th century. And here's what he writes. He references the biographies that we ought to be reading. He says, I commend you the reading of the biographies of those who have been most used of God in the church throughout the centuries especially in revival. He says, and you will find this same holy boldness, this arguing, this reasoning, this putting the case to God, pleading his own promises. Oh, that, oh, that is the whole secret of prayer. I sometimes think Thomas Goodwin, he was another Puritan, was a one, uses a wonderful term. He says, sue him for it. Sue him for it. He's speaking about God. He's saying, sue him for his promises. He says, don't leave him alone. Pester him, as it were, with his own promise. Quote the scripture to him, and you know God delights to hear us doing it as a father likes to see this element in his own child who has obviously been listening to what the father has been saying. So we bring back to God what he's taught his children to say. So let's ask God for that. Let us be people that understand if God can create the world, if he can sustain the world, He can surely meet his children when they come to him in prayer. But let's be ceaseless in our asking. 
So I'm going to begin for us. This is a time uh, where we just offer up words of thankfulness or confession or joy. Some of you may feel uncomfortable with speaking out loud. That's fine. Just pray silently or join in with those who do pray. For those who speak, those who do want to pray, then pray loudly so that we can join with you. Pray briefly so that others may join with you in prayer. But let us be ceaseless in our approaching of God for more of him, because, folks, we will never be satisfied this year apart from him. Let me begin in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Christ that we can even approach you with a boldness, asking, Father, grant to us more of yourself that we would find greater pleasure in you than even the gifts that you give us.